Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to Obscurities. I'm Debbie Rashawn. Travelers on the London Underground and passers-by around the Farringdon Station often report hearing screams late at night and sometimes during the day. It's a chilling sound, not to be confused with children playing or inebriated adults going home after a late night at the pub. The screech will send a chill down your spine or raise the hairs on the back of your neck. If you pause and wait, hearing no more, you may convince yourself that it was just a train rumbling below or a distant noise or even that you did not hear it at all. But be assured, the agonizing wail is real. It is the ghost of a 13-year-old girl who met an awful and agonizing death at the hands of sociopaths, not so carefully disguised as shopkeepers from the 18th century. To understand how and why this restless and troubled spirit haunts this area, we will need to take you back to London, 1758. The city of London was experiencing immense growth pains. Its exploding population surpassed Paris as the largest city in all of Europe decades ago, and there appeared to be no stopping the increasing populace anytime soon. The city of London itself was noisy, dirty, and overcrowded. During the population growth, the wealthy migrated to new districts, intent on keeping their environment separate from the poor. 18th century England had two types of people, those that were rich and those that were poor. There was no middle class. The Industrial Revolution's beginnings were soon to be upon the city, making the rich richer and the poor poorer. The wealthy were not concerned with the city's conditions because they lived in luxurious mansions and country homes, well-furnished and comfortable. Many of the wealthy inherited their fortunes and they knew nothing about having to work. Servants prepared their meals, cleaned their house, attended to their needs and any of their whims. The rich never worried about having to empty their chamber pots. Servants performed that task, and many others for them. It was common for the wealthy to look down upon the poor, believing it was their fault for not thriving in life. For many of the well-to-do, privilege was accompanied by ignorance of the harsh realities of life. The poor and struggling, however, saw life in a much different light. If you had a job, you usually had food to eat, so life was at least bearable. 
If you had no job, life was miserable. Children of the poor worked instead of going to school to provide much-needed income for their families. Some would work with their parents, assisting them however they could. Others worked in workshops making matchboxes or sewing garments. Some enterprising children went into business themselves, working as messengers, chimney sweepers, or crossing sweepers. A crossing sweeper cleared the path across the street so the wealthy could cross without soiling their fancy clothes. Shoe blacks were common as well, cleaning shoes of the upper class. Young girls, often as young as 10 years old, would become servants in a wealthy home. Disease and early death did not discriminate between the wealthy and the poor. Its impact upon the poor, however, amplified its repercussions. If rich parents passed away, the family's wealth often provided funds for an upper-class orphanage and a first-rate education. Poor orphans were not so lucky. Lower-class orphanages were overcrowded with poor conditions. Many children chose to live on the street, often resorting to theft for survival's most basic essentials. Workhouses would provide food and shelter in exchange for arduous and backbreaking work in harsh conditions. Workhouses had such a bad reputation, they were often looked upon as a last resort. Orphans who outgrew an orphanage, sometimes as young as eight years old, were assigned to a workhouse to prepare them for a responsible and self-sufficient life. People with trade or craft skills could do more than just eke out a living. Life could be bearable and almost close to enjoyable for those with some skills. Such was the case for Sarah Metyard and her daughter Sally. Sarah had a millinery shop which sold women's hats, mostly bonnets, decorated elaborately the bonnets and the occasional intricate hat, featured ribbons, lace, flowers, feathers, assorted trims, and on some, a combination of all the trimmings possible. Metyard and her daughter would design and manufacture the hats themselves, with apprentices doing most of the manufacturing. The Metyards made a sustainable living selling hats at their street shop, leased on Bruton Street in the prominent Hanover Square district, a preserved green space market, an oasis of wealth and luxury, surrounded by abject poverty. Metyard needed to constantly produce new designs and styles to compete with other vendors and afford her lease in such an upscale area. To accomplish this means, she employed five apprentice girls to manufacture her designs. Sally would assist in the apprentice's supervision to ensure quality and quantity quotas were met. The Metyards were not kindly shopkeepers, however. They have been described as complete and utter sociopaths. They delighted in being tyrants towards their help. Apprentice is a kind word. Slave laborer is closer to the truth. For the girls working in the shop, it meant strict and cruel work and living conditions. The girls worked from early in the morning to late in the evening. There was no time for leisure. At the end of a good work day, the girls had worked efficiently with few errors, 
and were rewarded with a meager meal and sent to bed exhausted. On bad days, mistakes and inaccuracies on the bonnet's construction would send Sarah and Sally into a rage, dishing out verbal and physical abuse and cruelty towards their charges. Meals were withheld. They relished providing a hostile work and living place to motivate them to work harder and avoid the displeasure of their masters. Beatings were meted out frequently. As an apprentice, naive girls dreamed that they would one day escape the hostile environment and operate their own shop. In reality, though, there was little chance for growth or escape, and the opportunity for another similar position in a similar environment was likely. Metyard would obtain workers from workhouses, supposedly offering an upgraded standard of living than the workhouse offered. She preferred orphans, as they had no family to return to or reach out for help. Girls who engaged with Metyard and her daughter soon found out how cruel and inhumane they could be. The girls in their care suffered from beatings and starvation rations. Two of these young girls were Anne Naylor and her sister. They were orphans, and they had been sent to the milliner for an apprenticeship. They joined three other girls working at the shop. All the young girls were orphans. Anne Naylor and her sister spent their first years in the orphanage system, then a workhouse, before transitioning to an apprenticeship to obtain the necessary skills to make a living. The sisters were stunned by the adjustment to working in the millinery. While they had chores to complete at the orphanage, and the workhouse certainly wasn't pleasant, it was nothing as demanding as what Sarah expected. Sarah and Sally mistreated all five of the girls. They were constantly verbally abused, tormented, physically assaulted, and were seldom provided with an adequate meal at the end of a long day. Anne, however, was a sickly child and struggled to keep up with the work and meet the demanded quotas at the quality expected by the Metyards. Thirteen-year-old Anne was not impressed with her employers, dictators who controlled all aspects of work and life, seven days a week, continuously. She was defiant, so even more so, she suffered the wrath of Sarah and Sally. They delighted in tormenting Anne. She was beaten daily, and the other girls suffered as well, as the mood was constantly unpleasant. It wasn't long before Anne was fed up with the mistreatment and ran away to escape. Unfortunately, upon exiting the building, she promptly ran into the mailman. Recognizing her, he grabbed Anne harshly by the arm and dragged her back into the building, only to meet the menacing glares from Sarah and her daughter. Sally grabbed Anne and brought her upstairs to the girls' sleeping quarters. Sarah followed behind, entering the room with a broken broom handle. Sally roughly pushed Anne to the bed. The beating that followed was severe. Bloody and bruised, the two women dragged Anne to the third floor, where they tied her to a door, preventing Anne from sitting or laying down. Anne's bruised and broken body hung limply from the door, and late that night she was untied and allowed to go to bed without a meal. 
The next day, however, the punishment continued. Sarah and Sally needed to impress upon Anne and the other girls that they would not tolerate defiance, and any escape attempts would be met with severe punishment. At sunbreak, Anne was taken back upstairs and tied to the door. Anne's employers were now her torturers, and the punishment lasted for days. At no point was she given any nourishment. Anne grew weaker and weaker, and after the third day, Sarah and Sally unhung her from the door and dropped her back into bed. The other girls were tremendously disturbed by Anne's treatment at the hands of Sally and her mother. Now they looked at her still lifeless body and were terrified she had died. The following morning, Anne still had not moved. Sarah reassured the other girls that Anne was fine and quickly herded them downstairs for work. When Sarah returned to the girls' room with Sally, they peered at Anne, looking for signs of life. Seeing none, Sarah grabbed a boot and threw it at Anne. Where it struck her, the woman detected no movement. When they drew closer, Anne was obviously not breathing and had probably died during the night or even the previous day while hanging from the door. Not knowing what to do with the dead body, Sarah reassured her daughter that everything would be fine. Anne was just an orphan. No one would miss her or be looking for her. They would reassure the other girls that Anne was well, that they had just moved her upstairs where she could recover with her punishment, continue to work, take her meals, and sleep. Sally was not happy with this plan. She hadn't expected the punishment would kill Anne, but agreed with their mother to implement the hoax that Anne was still alive. They moved Anne's body upstairs and placed it in a box. Over the next two months, mother and daughter claimed Anne was upstairs, spending her time working and sleeping. They even brought food upstairs to keep up appearances that Anne was still alive and well. No one ever heard Anne, though, and some of the girls suspected she had died, or illogically hoped that she had somehow escaped. However, as time passed, the stench of the decaying flesh filled the house, and Sarah knew something needed to be done with the body on the third floor. The body needed to be removed from the house. Sarah was unclear on how to complete this task undetected. While it was one thing to have an apprentice run away, never to be heard from, there would be a harsh penalty if they were found to have killed Anne themselves. Sally just wanted the whole mess to go away and blamed her mother for putting themselves in this unpleasant affair. The Metyards decided to cut up the body into tiny pieces and burn the individual parts. The process proved to be a task the women were not up to. It was smelly, disgusting, hard work and time-consuming. The flesh was putrid and decaying. Chopping up the body was repulsive and stomach-churning work. When they tried to burn the hunks of flesh and bone in the building fireplace, it gave off an incredibly horrendous stench. The smell was nauseating and utterly unbearable and wafted from their chimney into the neighborhood. They could not risk being given away by the revolting smell, so they smothered the fire. 
In the end, they ended up mutilating the rest of the body, reducing it into as small chunks as their stomachs would allow. Sarah and Sally transported and dumped the remains into a nearby gully off Chick Lane, which flowed into the sewer system. They were both glad to be finally rid of the remains of little Anne. Their final implementation of the disposal was less than perfect. A watchman came upon the remains, who reported the grisly discovery to the constable. At this point, news of the body in the gully became a topic of discussion in the parish. The coroner stepped in to investigate, but could not determine the cause of death or the identity of the mangled, decaying remains. The case soon dropped from the spotlight. Just another unknown body found in London, perhaps a homeless person or a low-life criminal, nothing of which to be overly concerned. But the incident wore on Sally. Her mother's actions and apparent lack of regret bothered her. In addition, Sarah's temperament and displeasure began to be directed at Sally. The mother and daughter often got into terrible arguments, and Sally frequently threatened her mother by exposing their terrible deeds. Sally moved in with a man and eventually confessed to him their horrible secret. He was disgusted and sickened by the admission. Over three and a half years after Anne's death, Sally's companion reported to the authorities the torture and murder of Anne Naylor. Both mother and daughter, Sarah and Sally, were immediately arrested and committed to trial in July 1762. The trial was quick. Murder was a heinous act met with justice and swift penalties. There was no shortage of witness testimonies against the Metyards. Many people knew of their intolerant and harsh work environment, customers, acquaintances, and former apprentices. No one was willing to offer second chances to murderers. Unsurprisingly, they were found guilty and sentenced to death by hanging in Tyburn. Under the Murder Act 1751, they were to hang in four days on Monday, July 19, 1762. If the previous day had not been a Sunday, they would have been ordered to hang in three days. On Monday morning, both women were placed in a cart to transport them from the notorious Newgate Prison to their home neighborhood in Tyburn. The cart ride was extensive. People lined the streets to boo and jeer them. Folks spat and threw refuse at them. Sarah eventually fainted, while Sally claimed she was innocent and pleaded to be released. When they arrived at Tyburn Square, a large crowd greeted them, anxious to view the hanging. The crowd's disgust against the pair was easily apparent. The stress of the cart ride through the city had rendered Sarah unconscious, and no amount of effort was spared to revive her, but it was impossible. The hangman lifted her limp body and placed the noose around her neck. Sarah's unconscious body slumped to the ground with the noose around her neck, unaware of her last precious moments of life. Sally continued to plead innocent, 
right up to the moment the floor dropped out from under her. Her mother, Sarah, fell through the opening, blissfully unaware of the proceedings. According to local law, the bodies of Sarah Metyard and her daughter, Sally, hung side by side in the neighborhood square for one hour. Since convicted of the abhorrent crime of murder, they were not allowed a proper or respectful burial. The bodies were removed and transported to Surgeon's Hall. There, Sarah and her daughter, Sally, finally contributed charitable and humanitarian purposes to their lives. Their bodies were dissected and studied, preparing young doctors for a future in medicine and surgery. One hundred years later, the Farringdon Underground Station opened near where Ann Naylor's body was unceremoniously dumped the previous century. While justice was served, Anne refuses to go quietly, or perhaps has lost her way. Farringdon Station remains to this day one of the oldest surviving underground railway stations in the world. From its opening on January 10, 1863, through its slight relocation in 1865, and on to today, travelers and passers-by can hear Anne's presence, torment, and suffering in the form of horrific ghostly screams. The next time you find yourself in or around the Farringdon Station, listen for little Anne and say a prayer for her tormented soul because she refuses to pass into obscurity.